Hello from ABA Mid-Year Meeting 2017 in Miami, Florida. I'm Sharon Nelson, a past president of the Virginia Bar and currently the president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm Sandy Gallant-Jones, Seventh Circuit Governor of the Law Student Division for the American Bar Association. Hi, I'm Crystal Araujo, Vice Chair of the SBA Law Students Division. I'm Michael Dumas. Jennifer Nichols. And Whitney Barkley, Policy Counsel with the Center for Responsible Lending. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. What is the current amount that the average law student graduates with in student debt? It, it's scary, but tell me. <laughs> uh, it's extremely scary. I've heard numbers from anywhere from $120,000 to $140,000 for law students. I have friends who have uh, $250,000, $300,000 in debt, um, which is it's obviously an extremely scary number considering uh, that's more than the price of some homes in you know, certainly smaller markets than Boston, Miami places where I live, that's that's a huge amount to be coming out of school with. You just recently graduated from law school. I did. And you are now working in the public service sector, working as, what, an assistant state's attorney? Uh, sure. So uh, I did graduate in May, thankfully passed the bar the first time, um, and I'm working as an assistant district attorney uh, for the state of Maine uh, up in my hometown. So that's even a larger burden when you think about the amount of debt that law students have when they graduate from law school and if they do want to work in some way as a public defender or as a prosecutor to have that type of burden. When you look at your five-year plan, you have to factor in student loan repayment. You're absolutely right. That's a, a huge consideration. I will tell you right now that my student payment is more than my uh, one of my uh, bi-monthly paychecks. Wow. It's uh, it's an incredible amount. And when you, you know, couple that with the standard living expenses, student loans for a significant other, uh, it adds up very quickly. Um, so to have the availability of uh, things like income-driven payment plans and then, you know, looking at it at a broader range, the public service loan forgiveness. And I know Jennifer's uh, doing some great work with uh, loaner payment assistance programs. Those are huge tools when you consider, uh, you know, the need, the grave need for many students to uh, lessen that burden of their student debt. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, I guess you're the appropriate person to ask, Jennifer. I know we've got about an 11% delinquency rate mm -hmm. across student debt generally. Is it about the same for law students? And how can you help them with this forgiveness thing? Is that really a viable option? Well, I think forgiveness is a, maybe a viable option, especially if Congress chooses to keep it on the books. But I'm really excited about something that we've been doing in Oregon for about 10 years now with our loan assistance repayment program. We use that program. We make renewable loans of up to $7,500 a year for up to three years. And if the recipient continues in a qualifying public interest position, those loans are forgiven after three years. So they can use that money to make their loan payments for three years. And then over the course of maybe 10 years, take advantage of something like the public interest loan forgiveness. This has been part of the dialogue taking place at the ABA Mid-Year Conference. What are the concerns of new graduates and of people maybe who graduated some time ago who still 
carry that burden. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought up not just new graduates, but people who graduated a long time ago. There was a study released in December by the Government Accountability Office and by the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that found that actually the fastest growing segment of people with student loan debt are seniors 50 and over in the United States, and it only increases as they get older and older. And about 25% of that is their own debt that they've borrowed, but the rest of it is actually debt that they've taken out for a child or a grandchild that they've co-signed for or taken a loan out independently of their child or grandchild. So we're actually talking about people who should be entering into their golden years um, who are actually now faced with having to pay down a lot of student loan debt. And the scary thing about that is that for those who are federal borrowers in that demographic who default, their Social Security can actually be garnished. Um, up to 15% of their Social Security payments every month can be taken as an offset to repay that federal student loan debt. So we do have now senior citizens who are getting their Social Security garnished in order to pay for a student loan debt. Crystal, you're part of this. You're involved as a law student, as am I. And, you know, for us, the JD is still the dream. We're working on acquiring that piece of paper that's going to be a lot of money at the end run. Do you think law schools are doing enough to prepare students for the debt burden that they are going to have down the road? I mean, I think we're here because it's a problem. So I wouldn't say that the problem is, you know, it's non-existent. It's there. So um, are they trying? Yes, I think I do see them trying, but I don't know if it's been a full force across the country. Um, we have schools doing different programs. Um, I'm learning today from just like the Oregon model, something that some schools can do on an individual basis. So I don't know if um, right now it's a blanket answer. And I think that right now students have a blanket problem. So I think that we need to start addressing it in that capacity so that we can get out of these big numbers that Mike was talking about earlier. Is one of the problems that the middle class is, is shrinking? And how much do you see this debt increasing over time? I think that worries a lot of people. I mean, I haven't studied, you know, the effects on the middle class currently in relation to this problem, but I do, you know, it's a big issue, the 99 versus the one. And I, I do see the debt increasing. So I'd, it is starting to become a, kind of like a rabbit hole that we're headed towards. Um, so it's something that I think we, sh we need to start addressing um, sooner rather than later. And I, I kind of feel like we're on the later end, but we need to address it because it's affecting our economy as a whole. Like you're mentioning the 99 versus the one, the middle class shrinking. Do you mind if I jump in really quickly? No. So I think one thing that most people don't actually realize is that smaller amounts of student loan debt are actually what we see the most default on. So we're not seeing wow. huge defaults in like $110,000, $200,000 range. We're seeing defaults on $10,000 worth of student loan debt. And part of that is because of completion, right? So students who have less loan debt, it likely means that they didn't complete their program wherever they were going, uh, but they still have to pay that loan debt back. And so when we go into particularly non-middle class communities, usually working class communities, you see small amounts of student loan debt five or six or seven thousand dollars but they're actually defaulted on it. So what are some solutions? How do we fix this problem? I know Crystal said there is no one blanket solution to this but maybe we do treat it as as a blanket problem. I actually think um, Crystal's instinct is right that there isn't a a blanket solution and that different borrowers need different solutions. So when we talk about, you know, people who are earning a lot of money and who are actually and have a lot of student loan debt, refinancing might work for them because they just want to get that lower interest rate and pay stuff off faster. For the people in the vast middle, it's about public student loan forgiveness. It's about income contingent and income-based repayment. And, you know, those are the things that are going to work and making sure that student loan servicers are actually putting students and, and borrowers into those programs that are going to work for them 
rather than just defaulting them or putting them into a forbearance. Uh, there is a lawsuit right now against Navient, the student loan servicer, and they found that they actually had $4 billion in additional debt added to student loan debt because they were placing students into forbearances rather than qualifying them for income-based and income-contingent repayment programs. So, and then for those students on the back end, you know, those students who have a little bit of debt, but they're defaulting on it, I think we really need to look at um, making sure that that debt is actually owed, you know, that they went to schools that were legitimate and that could actually service their needs. So there might be some discharge things around that that we could do. This has been such a big story. Do you think that people are actually being deterred now from going to law schools because they don't feel like they're going to be able to pay the debt back? I don't know if that's necessarily true. I I think, uh, you know, I certainly went into law school thinking, great, I'm going to go get uh, my JD in three years. I'm going to come out. I'm going to make a ton of money. Everything's going to be great. And then just about the time that first loan repayment payment hits, you realize that's not going to be the case. And it is a, a huge wake-up call. And, you know, you, you certainly go through law school and you you start to make yourself more aware of, uh, you know, certainly the job climate, what living expenses are like. Thankfully, I was a bit of a non-traditional student, so I, you know, lived the paycheck-to-paycheck lifestyle and, and understood that dynamic. But a lot of my classmates would go straight from undergrad to law school. They're now out getting their first job, many of them in the public sector. Uh, my school sent a lot of folks into uh, nonprofit agencies, into government work. And okay, great, we're going to go out, we're going to get an apartment, we're going to go buy a car. And all of a sudden it's like, well, we also have these big student loan payments that we need to start making. So it's, it's, it's an awakening. And I'm not sure how you get that across to, you know, 120,000 law students who are in school at any given time, first year through third year. I'll tell you, I think there's one thing that some law schools are really cluing into, and that is affordability. I know my school, Northern Illinois University, is definitely marketing the law school as being one of the most affordable law schools in the country. So is that something that you all see too, trending in terms of law schools across the country, that affordability really is on the forefront of students' minds? If I could just jump in, uh, I was very thankful to attend the only school in my state um, that's a law school, but one of the lowest uh, per year rates of tuition for in-student attendees, and that was, I think, 23000 which uh, when you look at other state institutions, you know, just across the border in New Hampshire and Vermont and Massachusetts, uh, it can be twice that. So that was certainly something that was put front and center to me when I was applying. Uh, hey, this is a great school, but guess what? you're also getting a great bang for your buck. So I, I do think that can factor into that decision-making process when it's uh, made aware to the students. We've had a great discussion today with Crystal Araujo, Jennifer Nichols, Michael Dumas, Whitney Barkley-Denny. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank, thank you for having us. All right, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode, and I want to thank our guests for joining us today. And we want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us on iTunes. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.